0: to our listeners. We're glad that you can join us on this new episode of Positively Pro-Life podcast. Positively Pro-Life is brought to you by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation and aims to bring you inspirational stories and conversation, important legislative updates, and informative interviews as we seek to restore and strengthen a culture of life. Mm-hmm. I'm your host, Rama Tenney, the education director at the Federation. And I have our legislative director, Maria Gallagher, joining us as co-host. So welcome, Maria, to the show as always. It's great to be with you today, Remo. We have a fantastic guest in store. Yes, and I'm so excited for that. And um so to, to begin with, if we look at the abortion movement through history you will find that they have always maintained that abortion is necessary for women to live fulfilled lives, that all of society will be better off with improved access to abortions. What began as a demand to make abortions legal, safe, and rare has resulted in the death of over 63 million babies in 50 years. And yet, the demand for more abortions is louder than ever. I think it is fitting now that We ask ourselves and one another, are women really empowered and fulfilled because of abortions? Are we as a society better off because of it? We will explore more on this today in our guest interview, but for now, Maria is ready with her update for for this week. Thank you so much, Remo. A
1: myth perpetuated by the abortion industry is that in the wake of the historic Dobbs U.S. Supreme Court decision last year, The populace is gung-ho pro-abortion and wants to expand abortion at every turn. The fact of the matter is that in national poll after national poll, it has been shown that most people oppose most abortions. Let me repeat that. Most people oppose most abortions. It is written on the human heart to stand squarely against the taking of an innocent, unrepeatable human life. Abortion is an inherently violent act, which kills a baby and leaves a woman to mourn the child she has lost. The abortion industry and its allies have mountains of money to throw into campaigns that try to convince voters of things that are not true. When vastly outspent, it is increasingly difficult for the pro-life side to correct the many, many misconceptions about the so-called right to abortion. This state of affairs has led all manner of candidates to try to ignore the issue of abortion altogether, even going so far as to be fearful to show support for pregnant women seeking alternatives to abortion. This is just conceding defeat and, worst of all, deprives mothers of the vital services they need. The pro-life brand is not toxic. Abortion is. We need to be resolute in explaining the devastating consequences of abortion to children, women, families in our society. The truth will eventually win out.
0: Remel. Wow, Maria, that was so good uh, because it, it is very relevant to the conversation we are having today with our guest. Um, Alexandra DeSantis is a staff writer at National Review and a visiting fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She's an alumni of Notre Dame, and she has gained a name for herself as one of the leading US journalists, and her articles have been featured in the Atlantic, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, and more. She has co-authored the book Tearing Us Apart: How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing, with Ryan T. Anderson. This book explores the abortion pr- propaganda in our society and exposes the false promises of the abortion rights movement. No matter where you approach it from, legally, socially, medically, culturally, or politically, this book reveals the damage done to all of society by embracing violence against our unborn children, and arrives at the conclusion that abortion has solved none of society's problems. And here with us to talk more about it is Alexandra. Welcome to the program.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So I have to say this, Um, I saw you, uh, your presentation at the Grove City Conference uh, earlier this year, and I have, this may not be the most tactful thing I'm saying on uh, public uh, radio, but it was the best presentation, uh, in my opinion. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it, it was so comprehensive. It, it captured so much about uh, why abortion is wrong and uh, how it has harmed the society. So I'm very excited for this conversation we're having today. Um, but to start us off, can you tell us your story? How did how did you become so passionately pro-life?
2: Sure. So I was raised, um, you know, Catholic and conservative. And so my, my family was always pro-life. It was something that Um, you know, we talked about at home, just the fact that that abortion happened, that it was, um, you know, it's wrong, why it's wrong. So I was always raised um, pro-life. But as I kind of got older and and thought more about what I wanted my work to look like, um, I've always loved writing and I I had a desire to go into journalism. And um, it just sort of happened that when I I started my first job after college, um, the kind of abortion policy pro-life movement area was something I, I wanted to focus on a lot, and. Uh, my editors were very supportive of that and and wanted uh, me to cover that issue. And so the more I learned and the more I wrote about it, the more passion I became. And I, I ended up really unintentionally um, just kind of stepping into this role of, of uh, covering it pretty regularly. It's one of the one of the main things I've written about and, and even ended up writing this book and now um, speaking on the topic quite a bit. So it's been sort of self-reinforcing, right? The more work I do, the more I, I care about the issue, the more I learn uh, and the more opportunities I've had to, to work on it.
1: And I have to say, as a former journalist myself, I am just awe-inspired by your work. I mean, it, it is so well done and so well researched, so well written. Um, can you tell us now, how is abortion tearing us apart?
2: Well, thank you so much. And, and, and yeah, so the idea of the, the book title is kind of twofold, right? The the obvious way to understand the title is abortion tears apart the bodies of, of innocent unborn children, right? Um, that's just factually speaking, sadly, what happens in every abortion. Uh, but we also argue in the book that abortion has really torn apart our society. Um, it's torn about, apart families and marriages. It's torn apart uh, you know, our politics, our, look at the way our, our political process has been polarized by this issue. Um, it's torn apart just kind of relationships between people who don't agree on this and can't find a way to, to talk about it civilly or, or to find any kind of common ground or understanding. Um, and so I think there, there's really a, this deep sense in which this issue has divided our country on on the deepest possible level, you know, not just politically, but ethically, morally, um, even down to the level of, of individual relationships.
0: Yeah. And uh, as I was reading your book, I think one of the things that really stood out to me, uh, I just want to read that sentence uh, or part of that sentence. Um, You said, abortion strikes at the bond between mother and child, a relationship uh, and turning it into a conflict between adversaries and a justification for violence, a relationship not of love, but of antagonism and mutual destruction. I have to say the phrase mutual destruction stood out because I think we have often looked at abortion and the effect that an abortion has had on the women. And we've talked about it separately. The death of a child is a separate thing and uh, the effect of abortion on the women is a separate thing. But I think that's the first time uh, that word made sense. Like it's a mutual destruction. Can you expand on that?
2: Sure. So I I think the argument... um for abortion that we hear most often is is the idea that, and you kind of spoke about this earlier, the idea that women need abortion, right? That it's somehow good for women or at least necessary for women to have this option. Um, and I think what that's kind of what we meant by adversaries, right? Women now are, are taught or our society tells women that their unborn children are somehow an antagonist or an enemy or a villain in their life story, right? If you're you're pregnant and you don't want to be this child or this thing inside of you is somehow opposing your dreams or your hopes or is going to, to harm you. Um, and so abortion is kind of this way that you can set yourself free or or kind of attack this antagonist so that you can be free from that problem. When in reality, of course, the the relationship between mother and child is the most intimate, vulnerable relationship, the the closest, most dependent human relationship that there is. Um, It's supposed to be one where the the mother, you know, her very body supports and takes care of the child inside of her. Um, And so with abortion, you see that turned on its head. The mother sees the child as an enemy, treats it as an enemy. And then, in fact... I think that because of what abortion is, the mother in turn is is destroyed. Of course, not in a in the sense that the child is; she's still alive usually after an abortion procedure. Uh, but I think uh, you know, knowing that every abortion takes the life of an innocent child, that means that every mother who's had an abortion has had a hand in, in killing her own child, right. And choosing to end the life of her own child. And that's a deeply destructive thing for that woman to have done. Um, And of course, there's always, you know, hope for redemption and grace and forgiveness and those sorts of things. Uh, Women can always, can always be forgiven um, and sort of put their life back together after making that choice. But there is a sense in which that choice does deeply harm and destroy the woman too.
1: Let me go back to the idea of freedom, because it's often mentioned. We hear phrases like reproductive freedom. Why is it that the idea that abortion brings freedom to a woman inherently flawed?
2: Well, I think uh, something we talk about in the book is um, our society has kind of turned the notion of freedom on its head. Freedom used to really be understood as an ability to pursue the good or or kind of the space within which a human person could flourish um, or have the conditions to to flourish and, and live in accord with, with what's good for human nature. Uh, but now we sort of understand freedom or many people have come to understand freedom as license or just this ability to do whatever it is we might want um, within certain kind of limited boundaries. And, and so in that context, you can see how the unborn child could very well be understood as a limit on a woman's freedom, right? If a woman doesn't want to be a mother or, uh, you know, wants to have a career that would be hindered by by having to care for a child some of the time or, or whatever the case might be, um, just getting rid of that child or disposing of that child somehow, no longer being pregnant uh, is a ticket to freedom it's a ticket to continued living out whatever the the dream that woman might have that is might be changed or altered or or even limited by the child uh, and so I think what we really would have to do here is kind of recover a sense of freedom that involves some sense of responsibility or or the you know living in accord with what is right and good not simply doing whatever it is we might want uh, regardless of how it might harm others yeah
0: and I think that as the notion of freedom is always associated with the rad- radical feminism that you write about so um is it ever possible that with that kind of of an attitude um that the majority of the women can be or come to peace uh with abortions as as a as the right solution like is it could it ever be possible
2: could it be possible for abortion to be the right solution
0: mhm no, as in as in for a feminist woman uh someone who's, who values freedom could it uh and if we see and could it ever be possible that majority of women could embrace a freedom like that and actually live fulfilling lives
2: oh I see well I you know I think um a lot of the the conversation around this issue really has its roots in the in the sexual revolution um and there's kind of a, a shift in how feminists understood themselves and how feminists understood freedom so earlier in the 20th century um every feminist, every woman's rights advocate that we know about from that time period uh, was pro-life. And they were pro-life not only because they believed that it was immoral to end the life of an unborn child, but also because they argued that abortion was bad for women, um, kind of along the lines of what we've already been talking about, right? That it it really put the kind of burden or responsibility of, of parenthood and pregnancy even more on a woman's shoulders because women or men were kind of enabled to abandon women even more by abortion, right? Abortion just makes it even more of a, a woman's problem, so to speak. Um, and this really shifted around the time of the sexual revolution. And so I think in order to change that perspective or for women uh, to kind of be able to to embrace motherhood or to to reject abortion we'd really need a societal shift in um how we view the hu- even the human person or what it means to be human right um the idea that that women become pregnant and men don't and that that's something we have to actually reckon with as a society, right? That men should support women, that women shouldn't be left alone as mothers. Um, these kinds of things we don't really believe anymore as a society, right? We just kind of think that that sex is supposed to be consequence-free and fun and everyone has a good time and then you can just walk away. And in that context, it, it makes sense that people think they need abortion, right? And so to really, I think, create the kind of society you're talking about where women don't feel like they need abortion, we would have to get to the root of, of that mindset
1: me, how has pro-life advocacy changed since the overturn of Roe?
2: Uh, well, it's definitely been a very different ballgame. I don't know that, that pro-lifers have been as prepared as we could have been. It's like we spent these, these 50 years um, working so hard, focused so hard on Roe and and weren't really um, didn't really know what the landscape was going to look like once it was gone. And so there's been a little bit of a scramble, I think. Um, and I think that the main way in which it's changed is we now have this very um, new and very strange state by state battle where in one state, um, you know, the the best thing the pro-life movement might be focused on is trying to prevent, uh, you know, the state from fu- directly funding abortions with taxpayer money or, um, you know, prevent the state from from trying to shut down pregnancy resource centers, for example, whereas in another state, you might be able to have even a something like a heartbeat bill or even a, a complete protection for unborn children. Um, so it's really I think it's it's difficult in that there's not this monolithic focus on this one big strategy or this one big goal anymore the way there was when Roe was in place. Um, and that has some some strength, certainly, right? There's a number of states now where we do have really good pro-life protections. Uh, but the weakness is we don't necessarily have a, a really informed top-down strategy of what all pro-lifers ought to be working on at a more national level um, or really a, a sense of where we're headed beyond these kind of state-by-state uh, one-off battles.
0: Yes. And um, going back to what Maria had shared in her update, uh, most of the population, the American people, do not agree with abortions uh, through all nine months of pregnancy. Uh, They want to see limits. And yet we see that, uh, I think you beautifully wrote it in in your article um, uh, celebrating this year's uh, Dobbs anniversary this year. So as I was reading it, I I I I've Saw that you'd written. If presented with what appears to be a choice between all or nothing on abortion, most Americans will choose all, right? So, um, can you speak into that and how? What would be a winning strategy for pro-life advocates in the in the months and years ahead? Especially because this is where the population this is where the population is at.
2: Yeah, well, I, I think you're both exactly right to to note that most Americans do not support abortion for any reason through all nine months of pregnancy, which is the the stance, unfortunately, of the, the Democratic Party. Uh, but at the same time, most Americans also don't support what we would prefer, which is total protection for all unborn children from the moment of conception. Right. And so. Um, while I think we should continue advocating that and trying to explain to our fellow citizens that that's really the only just posture, right? And indeed, only the the only solution that's good for women too. I, I feel very strongly we have to keep making that case. Politically speaking, I don't think it's very prudent to continue pushing for the absolute most protective law we we um, we want eventually, because in many places that's not politically popular, unfortunately. Um, and so that's kind of what what Ryan and I meant in that article by um, all or nothing, right? If you look at these. Uh, these ballot measures, for example, last year, every pro-life ballot measure failed and every pro-abortion ballot measure succeeded um, with a direct vote. And I think the reason for that is many Americans have this sense that that there are some cases where women need abortion. They might not like abortion, they might wish we could protect unborn children, but they have this sense that at least some of the time women might need this option. Um, And so because of that, I think that the winning strategy as pro-lifers is not to say that yes, abortion is okay sometimes, but to acknowledge that most Americans are not where we are, and if we insist on or if we we come across as though we're insisting on having the absolute perfect law tomorrow, we're going to lose many people who are closer to our position um, simply because there are these cases where, where many Americans still would want to see abortion be legal. Um, and so I suppose that the the heart of what I'm saying is we have to have an incrementalist strategy where we we continue trying to win people over but are still willing to support the the most politically um, feasible law that we can for right now.
1: So given all of this, what do you think should be some next steps for the pro-life movement? What do we need to work on?
2: Well, the one big issue I keep coming back to is I think it's really important for pro-life politicians in particular, anybody who's kind of in the public eye speaking about this, um, to learn how to speak about abortion in a way that reaches Americans, right? And and like we've already spoken about, I think the number one reason people think we should have abortion um, still be legal is because they think women need it, right? And so we have to be able to respond to the claim that women need abortion. We have to be able to explain that, you know, not only do women not need abortion, but abortion is actually harmful to women. Uh, being able to make that case, I think, would actually win over a lot of Americans if they began to see abortion as as not a good thing for women, not a solution. Um, I really think that would change a lot of hearts, and a lot of minds. And unfortunately, that's not something we hear about very much in the context of the pro-life uh, argument. It's obviously important to talk about the unborn child. But I think that's that's honestly the only thing we focus on a lot of the time. Um, and unfortunately, it really hasn't persuaded everybody. And so we have to learn how to speak to their concerns and, and to respond to the reasons they think um, abortion should be legal.
0: Um. You touched upon this, but why do you think the pro-abortion side has won its recent victories?
2: Well, I, I do think there's a number of reasons. One big one, and you know, I think we talk about this a lot as conservatives more broadly, but um, media coverage typically is very pro-abortion or very um, favorable to the other side. And so it's very hard to find accurate information even about what happens in an abortion procedure or what Democrats support when it comes to abortion? Or these kinds of things are, are not easy to find. Uh, most people are not as plugged in, don't spend as much time paying attention to the issue as we do. And so uh, because there's that kind of stranglehold on, on so many forms of media, many people just don't really know what's going on. Right. They they only know what they can get by glancing at the news now and again. Um, and so I think that's one way that that kind of the extremism of the other side really gets covered up. Um, And I also think kind of like you mentioned, the all or nothing point is really important, right? If most Americans think that the options are absolutely no abortions at all, or all abortions with no limits, uh, they're going to begrudgingly pick the second one. Many people will. Um, And so I think the, the abortion movement has been very good at portraying it as an all or nothing choice, because they know that that in that context is really the only place where they win.
1: And following up on that, why do you think the vice president refuses to say there should be limits on abortion?
2: Yeah, well, this unfortunately is something we've we've come to see from pretty much all national democratic politicians over the last um, decade plus now. And, and the reason for it is um, if you think about kind of the, the main argument for abortion, right, we've talked about it, that women need abortion. Uh, the claim there is that there's no situation in which Someone other than the woman or the abortionist should be making a decision about when or whether or why she's going to be getting an abortion. And so if that's your point of view, if your argument is this is totally up to women and abortionists, um, then you the logical extension of that, right, the, the only logically consistent position is that we can't have any limits at all on abortion. Now, they don't usually like to come out and say it so openly because it's very politically unpopular to admit that, Um but they don't have any, there's no logical dividing line, right? Once you say that this is just a woman's choice and for any reason she should be able to do it, um, you can't really come up with any coherent place to draw a line on when suddenly there might be a reason we could place limits on that.
0: Yes, and um, I'm sure that education is has a lot to play. Um, and you said, and you talked about media, how we, we have... Uh, limited media coverage when it comes to pro-life issues, and something that we talk, that uh, I was reading about recently was how the abortion pill, uh, the Fifth Circuit's decision on the abortion pill, the the final decision had was uh, was portrayed by the media as something negative. But if you really look at it more more in depth, you would see that the FDA really backtracked on their own rules and regulations, and no no one's covering that. Now you work in the media. So can you tell us how um how can we break through these uh these giants <laughs> that, that stand in Norway?
2: Well, it's a, a complicated question, right? I mean, there there are always going to be very big, very um public media outlets that either, you know, I think some of the reporters just don't know the issue very well, don't spend the time with it. You can see this and how they cover other issues, they just don't have much interest in actually speaking to people on the ground or getting the facts. there's just kind of a a lack of effort in general um, towards good journalism. But I also think there is unfortunately some bias, right? There are a lot of reporters who just are personally in favor of abortion. And so they choose to cover the issue in a very um slanted way, right? They only speak to maybe the most radical or the kind of crazy sounding people on our side and then, you know, talk to the most reasonable sounding people on the on the pro abortion side, for example, or just these different ways they have to skew, um to skew the issue. And so I think one big way to to kind of fight this is have alternative media, right? That's why I've been working at National Review. That's why I think it's good when when pro lifers learn how to use social media effectively and kind of in a, a compelling way, um, just finding other ways to reach people. Uh, and then I think part of it too is um, if you get a chance to talk to a news outlet or you know trying to find ways to make those connections where where you can be the person speaking for the the pro life movement that's a big way to, to kind of break through and make sure at the very least that our point of view is being um, you know reported on fairly as much as we can. I think those are some small ways, uh, but unfortunately, I think there's really only only so much we can do in that context.
1: Where do you see signs of hope? I I, I think just writing a book is actually a venture in hope. Um, but where else do you see signs of hope?
2: Well, I definitely think um younger Americans are are very pro-life. Um now, not entirely, right? There are are um plenty of younger Americans who might say they're pro-life and yet still say that that women should have the choice to have an abortion, which is kind of an interesting tension. Um, but I do think that there's a, a kind of whole generation of people that think about this issue a lot differently than we have in previous generations just because of something like sonograms right being able to see an ultrasound it's kind of a almost a cliche to say at this point but i think everybody kind of knows there's a human being there which wasn't always true people weren't always willing to admit that um so i think that really has changed the the terms of the debate and um i think that's why we now kind of have to move on to this this terrain of is abortion good for women because we're not really fighting no one kind of uh with their head on straight is fighting about whether this is a human being anymore. Right. We're we're really disagreeing about whether abortion is a good thing. Um, so I suppose that's one sign for hope. And, and another I'd mention is um, there are, are human beings live walking around, right. Kids out there walking around or maybe just learning to walk. Who knows? Um, because of Roe. Right. Um, because of Roe having been overturned, I should say. And so I think, you know, there are are babies in the world now who wouldn't have been alive otherwise. That's a a huge victory and a huge sign for hope. And so just because we're not totally at the finish line, it's probably going to take another 50 years to really get much of anywhere, unfortunately. Um, I think just the very fact that there are are human beings in the world um, because of Roe having been overturned is is something we should not uh, overlook.
0: Just real quick before we close out, where can we find your book? How can we follow you? And where can we find your articles?
2: Sure. So so most of my um, articles are kind of collected at the Ethics and Public Policy uh, Center website. Um, so you can find that at eppc.org. And then I'm also on social media. Sometimes um, my, my Twitter handle is uh, Zan underscore DeSanctus. And our book Tearing Us Apart um, can be found pretty much anywhere you can buy books, you know, Amazon for now, Barnes & Noble. Um, and if you have a kind of local independent bookstore, um, ask them to stock it or ask your library to get it or uh, any place you, you might like to get books. And are there more books in your future? Well, I certainly hope so. Um, yeah, I'm doing some thinking through uh, what 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 is best to spend my my energy on next, but I definitely have some ideas.
1: That's terrific. Um, I want to thank Alexandra De Sanctis, staff writer at the National Review and a visiting fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Thank you so much for appearing on Positively Pro Life today.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It was great talking with both of you.
1: Positively Pro-Life is made possible through the generous support of the members of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation all across the Commonwealth. The Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation is the largest single issue pro-life organization in the Keystone state with more than 40 local county-based chapters shine a spotlight on the most vulnerable individuals from the very dawn of life to the twilight of life. Thank you for joining us on the program today. It would not be the same without you. We are grateful for your continuing support and encouragement. We'll have more interesting guests in the future, and we always thank our listeners for being there with us on this journey as we restore and strengthen a culture of life. And remember, there is always a reason to choose life.